Right, we are in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, keep your Bibles open there, and because uh, we'll, be, we'll be working through it. It's a pretty tough passage. There's a lot in there. Now, um, just as we begin, I want to ask us a hypothetical question. Yeah, a hypothetical question. What if you could completely separate what it is you do for most of the week and the rest of your week? Yeah? Now, let me ask that again. What if you could completely separate what it is you do for most of the week from the rest of your week? What would happen? So what would, what would it mean if you, say, could completely sever um, your life of studies from the rest of your life, for example, for those of you who are studying? Or what if you could completely sever your work life from the rest of your life? Or what if you could completely sever your social life from your home life? I wonder what benefit it might bring. I wonder what harm it might cause. Now, um, I'd love to kind of give you some time to think about how you might answer that question. I'd be interested to know that. Um, But uh, it's the question that um, this show in particular, Severance, kind of toys with. Yeah, now Severance is a sci-fi psychological thriller, so it's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, But the story follows a guy called Mark. Uh, He works for a tech company, and Mark, by agreeing to work there, uh, he has to go through this medical procedure, a severance, um, which separates his non-work memories completely from his work memories. Yeah, so, so his life outside of work knows nothing of his life inside work, and his life inside work knows nothing about his life outside work. Fascinating, huh? Um, at its best, I reckon that's like work-life balance on steroids. Yeah? That's work-life balance on steroids. But at its worst, which is where I think the show goes, uh, you wonder what the company might have to hide. right? Now, uh, we're not here this morning to discuss the show Severance as much as it's interesting to. Um, I bring this up for us because I think it introduces something I think Jesus' followers sometimes do. Yeah, not that we sever our lives or anything like that, but, but I think we sometimes almost sever um, Jesus, if you like. Right? Specifically, we sever um, his divinity from his humanity. Or maybe um, at a less extreme level, maybe not sever, we at least prioritize his divinity over his humanity. Right? And there are some pretty good explanations why we might do something like that, right? I mean, even reading through the book of Hebrews up till now, we've gotten a sense yeah, of, of just how glorious Jesus is. Right? From the beginning of the book, the writer has given us plenty of reasons to see how exalted and divine Jesus is. Jesus made the universe. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus is greater than even the angels and has a greater salvation to offer. See, Jesus is his glorious savior. And Jesus being fully God, divine, is incredible news. A godless Jesus makes Christianity utter nonsense. But I wonder, do we feel the same way about Jesus being fully human? Does a humanless Jesus make Christianity utter nonsense. I wonder whether you feel as strongly about that statement as maybe the last. Because the writer of the Hebrews certainly thinks so. And so as he moves from the lofty heights of Jesus' exaltation now to his downward descent into humanity, he gives us at least two reasons for why he would do such a thing, yeah? And the two reasons are, and it's in your outlines if you want to follow along, that Jesus became fully human to be our pioneer, and that Jesus became fully human to be our champion. 
Yeah, Jesus became fully human to be our pioneer. Jesus became fully human to be our champion. Uh, why don't you pray with me? Our Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord Jesus. Help us to sit as people who delight in your word and are expectant to hear you speak. In your name we pray. Amen. So firstly, Jesus became fully human to be our pioneer. Yeah? Now, now, before we reach to talk about specifically that point, our writer moves from making much of Jesus in uh, chapter 1 and through the beginning of chapter 2 now to making much of humanity. Yeah? So read from verses 5 to 8a with me, uh, the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 8. So it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. See, how glorious is humanity? How much dignity does humanity have? The answer is soaring amounts. Soaring amounts. Why? Because God made it so. Yeah, Humanity is glorious uh, from the Bible's point of view because from the very beginning, God chose mankind to rule the world. God could have chosen any other creature, any spiritual being like the angels for that task. God could have also chosen nobody at all, right? It's not like God needed help. And yet from the very beginning, God decided to give humans the unique task to rule under him and to bear his image and likeness. And you'll see our writer quotes from Psalm 8, a psalm where King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, he sings of the soaring heights that God gives to humanity. Right? As David looks out at the number of stars in the sky, the moon and the stars, and what we now, do, what we now know to be the number of billions of galaxies in our universe, he's just simply stupefied by everything that he sees, and he just goes, what is it about us? that you are mindful of humanity. What is it about us, son of man is just another term for, for mankind, that you would care for us? Why would you crown us with glory and honor? Why would you put everything under our feet? That's baffling, God. That makes no sense, God. From the standpoint of the universe, we are smaller than a speck of dust, and yet the testimony the Bible gives is that God uniquely and intimately cares for us. I wonder whether thoughts like this have ever crossed your mind. God has a really, really high view of humanity. Now, just as a quick side point, um, to see humanity like that's not that common, is it? Um, there's this um, 20th, 20th century British um, philosopher guy who has been known to have said, uh, man is nothing but fat enough for seven bars of soap, iron enough for one medium-sized nail, sugar enough for seven cups of tea, Lime enough to whitewash one chicken coop, phosphorus enough to tip 2,000 matches, and sulfur enough to rid one, of, one dog of fleas. Right? Kind of funny. Uh, but this type of thinking would, I think, still have quite a lot of traction today. Because uh, after all, apparently, we share 95% DNA with a chimp, 75% DNA with a mouse, and 60% DNA with a chicken. So what makes us think we're so special? The answer is God does. That God, in verse 8, deliberately put everything under our feet. 
that he left nothing that is not subject to us. But if we step back from this psalm, from the book of Hebrews, uh, just for a second, uh, God's view of humanity kind of leaves us in a pretty puzzling place, doesn't it? Because just as incredible as that portrait of humanity is, well, it, it just doesn't square with what we see, right? I mean, the writer in the book of Hebrews sees this tension too. That's why he continues, second half of verse 8, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. This is key. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. See, when we look around us, it's pretty natural to ask, are we, are we really crowned with glory and honor? Is everything really under our feet? I mean, on the one hand, humanity has done some pretty remarkable things, right? We've gone to space. We've created advanced civilizations. We've got complex languages, cultures, systems of government. We, we, we've transformed raw materials into huge technological advancements. And unlike other created beings, we value things like rights and kindness and progress. And yet at the same time, we can't seem to control much of anything, can we? I mean, who, just five years ago, who could have predicted a global pandemic? And part of the reality for us now is just to learn to live with it because we've just admitted the consensus is, hey, there's no way to actually control or contain this. And not only that, I mean, I can't even control the weeds growing in my backyard. No matter how much product I use, no matter how hard I pull, they just come back faster than I can remove them. There's something that, seems, that would seem so natural, like Jody, my wife, feeding our five-month-old son. Right? That, that should be pretty natural. That's been so difficult to manage. That's been proven to be so difficult for us. And they're just two situations of the hundreds that remind me daily, hey, we control so little in our world. Despite the glories of Psalm 8, despite the promise of Psalm 8, clearly everything isn't under our feet. But our writer adds one more layer of to that tension because even though we do not see things subject to humanity right now, the writer also, back in verse 5, have a look at verse 5, he says, it isn't to angels he's subjected to the world to come, meaning what? It's not to angels he's subjected to the world to come, it's because he's subjected, to the world, he's subjected the world to come to humanity. Right? In other words, the writer's going, yes, there's a tension right now, but in the world to come, God will make humanity perfectly glorious again. In the world to come, things will once more perfectly return to being under humanity's feet. Humanity will once more rule under God. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be going, okay, that sounds all pretty good, but it's not even like that now. How can we be certain that that will be the case? What can we see to ensure that what the writer is saying is true? We'll take a look from verse 9. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now there's a lot there, but what is it saying in a nutshell? How can we know that in the world to come, this will happen? Well, he's saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, specifically look to Jesus, the human and pioneer. 
The one who was already ushered in the world to come with his life, death, and resurrection. See, even though we don't see ourselves crowned with glory right now, verse 9 says we can see Jesus. We can see Jesus who is a human. He is fully man. And for a time, he was made a little lower than the angels. But he's now crowned with glory and honor. See Jesus who joined us, who became one of us, who entered into our domain and world. That's what we celebrate each Christmas, right? And by dying and rising, Jesus, now still fully human, is crowned with glory. He now has everything under his feet. He is what we are not. Do you see that logic? While we don't presently see everything subject to us, there is one pioneering human, Jesus, who already has everything subject to him. See him who is crowned and honored. See him who has ushered the world to come. Right? The vision of humanity from Psalm 8, we don't experience it, but it's reality for Jesus. So see him. Now, some of you are going and responding to that, and you go, but why would I want to do that? That's kind of like window shopping for something we want. It's nice, but ultimately unfulfilling. Why do I want to look to Jesus just because he's got what I don't have? Well, if you look more closely at verse 9 and 10, yeah, you'll see the writer tells us to look at Jesus, not just because he's the first to fulfill the vision of humanity from Psalm 8 as pioneer, but even more importantly, he tells us to look at Jesus because of why he became that pioneer and how. Yeah, so looking back at those verses, why did Jesus become a pioneer? Why did Jesus become a pioneer? Did Jesus become the first human to live out the vision of Psalm 8 just to be the solo person standing on a podium for everyone else to look at? Right? Should we see Jesus like a, um, like a Neil Armstrong, the first person on the moon, or an Edmund Hillary, the first person to climb Everest? Right? Is that how we should see Jesus? Well, the answer is no, right? absolutely not. Jesus isn't a pioneer who stands on some podium for us to just politely clap from a distance. Jesus becomes this pioneer to, verse 10, bring many sons and daughters to that same glory. Jesus is far more like a pioneer for a rock climbing expedition. Yeah, for a rock climbing expedition. Now, I don't know a whole lot about rock climbing expeditions, but from what I do know, if the lead person, if the front person reaches the top, well, everybody attached the rope under them is guaranteed safety. And it doesn't matter if they slip. It doesn't matter if they even let go of the rope. It doesn't matter if they stumble. It doesn't matter if they hurt themselves on the way up because that front person, that lead person is already there and they will pull them up. Friends, do you see? Jesus became human. He fulfilled the vision of Psalm 8 to a T in order to bring other sons and daughters to glory. Now, I don't know about you, but when I travel overseas, I'd rather put my trust in a local I know who's there before a travel agent who only reads TripAdvisor reviews. In a far more significant way, Jesus, our pioneer, will bring us to glory because he's already there. In the words of C.S. Lewis from his famous book, Me Christianity, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons and daughters of God. Yeah, so that's the why. Which leads us to our second question, how? How did Jesus become our pioneer? Um, let's take another look at parts of verses 9 to 10. Right? Uh, I've got that there. Um, the parts of verse 9 to 10 I want to focus on is that verse 9, he had to suffer death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
And verse 10, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. See, what are those two verses saying together? That for Jesus to be our pioneer, he had to suffer and taste death for everyone. The reason the Bible gives why we don't rule under God and the the reason why things aren't subject under us is because, well, we didn't want to rule under God in the first place. Pretty much since the creation of the world, we wanted to rule above him and over him. That we wanted to toss God aside and actually take his place. That though he made us, we despised him. And so instead of order, abundance and life, chaos, suffering and death entered and continues to remain in our world. And we feel the impacts of that every moment of every day. And so for a human now to be crowned with glory and honor once more, for a human pioneer to bring us to glory, well, it's got to mean that we've got to first repair and undo what we've stuffed up. See, we look at Jesus because God, out of love, took a first step to us. Out of grace, he took the initiative to fix our mess. That until Jesus became man, he couldn't fix anything on humanity's behalf. He couldn't live the life that humanity should have lived. He couldn't suffer as humanity suffers. He couldn't die the death that we deserve to die. See, for God to do something for us, God had to be first, be one of us. Yeah? For God to do something for us, God had to be first, be, had to first be one of us. To put it another way, to qualify as humanity's pioneer, Jesus had to first be one with us. That's why the writer in verse 10 describes that it was fitting, yeah? it was necessary, meaning God saw that this was the only way to bring humanity to glory by making Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Now that's not saying Jesus needed perfecting because he was like corrupt or morally corrupt, but Jesus had to be made perfect in the sense that he had to be made complete and effective to the task of fixing our mess. That until Jesus became man, until he could suffer and taste death as man, he could not be our effective pioneer. He had no way until that happened to bring us to glory. Now, that's a huge idea, but we kind of get it, don't we? I mean, when, when a teacher is unwell, um, a school can't just ask the stranger at the bus stop to come in to teach the class. The substitute must effectively match the person they're replacing. They've got to be a qualified teacher. In a similar way, because Jesus became human, he could substitute himself to be the solution to humanity's mess. To qualify as our effective pioneer, to be made perfect to be our effective pioneer, Jesus had to be made human. For us to be brought to glory, Jesus, our pioneer, had to perfectly suffer as we do. He had to perfectly die in our place so that he could perfectly bring us to where he is. And so look at Jesus who became fully man to be our pioneer because he lives that vision of Psalm 8 because he suffers and tastes death in our place so that he can bring us to glory. Now, that was a lot. Um, But the writer doesn't want us to just see Jesus, right? He doesn't want us to just see Jesus. He also wants us to hear the way Jesus now sees us. Read from verse 11. Verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, we're what? We're of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And just in case we don't believe that Jesus is now one of us, in verses 12 to 13, the writer strings a couple of quotes from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 to prove his point. 
See, friends, would you get this incredible news around your head? Jesus sings our praises. Jesus sees us as precious. He's one of us. And that even though we continue to live at times like we've got, we want no part of him, he's not ashamed of us. I wonder whether there is a challenge in there for some of us today. Um, I have a little brother. Uh, his name's Derek. And uh, I confess that when I was a, like, a young teen, um, I used to be pretty embarrassed of him. Uh, Derek would follow me around at school. Uh, he'd follow me around at church. <clears throat> he'd follow me around at youth. And, you know, I was just embarrassed of him and by him. And I was like, come on, man, give me some space. Stop, stop following me around. Get your own friends. Well, I wanted to distance myself from him. I wanted to almost say to the, like, my, my friends, I don't know this guy. Um, now, for those of you who've met him, and I know some of you have, you'd know that nobody would believe me because we almost look identical. Um, <clears throat> but to my shame, in those moments, um, I was ashamed to call him my brother. I wanted to keep my distance. Now, I wonder whether we do an equivalent of that to our spiritual brothers and sisters here at SWEC. <clears throat> that we want to and sometimes actually keep our distance because uh, we're embarrassed of them and to be around them. I mean, never mind the difference that in church, uh, uh, the diversity and difference we see actually celebrates the unity in Jesus that we actually share before anything else. But if Jesus, our pioneer, isn't ashamed of you and I, despite all the ways we've offended and ignored him, on what basis can we possibly be ashamed and embarrassed of others who Jesus also willingly calls brother and sister? On what basis, what right do we have? And there's a challenge there, I think, to repent and ask for forgiveness for some of us, isn't there? But it's not just a challenge. I think there's an encouragement as well. See, I wonder whether Jesus not being ashamed of us is also something some of us need to be encouraged by today. Now, maybe you feel Jesus is embarrassed of you in some way. Maybe you feel Jesus would, if Jesus would have his way, he'd, he'd rather spend time with someone else, maybe someone more holy than you, someone more likable than you, someone with more potential than you, someone who doesn't fail as often as you. Maybe you feel like you continue to let him down. Now, if that is you, would you hear the amazing truth that if we are one of his, Jesus, that same Jesus who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, because he is fully human and our pioneer, sees and delights to call you his brother or sister. I love the illustration that one pastor uses. He gets his readers to imagine a, um, a, a massive family photo yeah, of of. Of, of all believers through history. Now, if you imagine that family photo, um, who would you see in that photo? What kinds of people would be there? Now, let me read out an extended thought for us. Um, follow along. Um, he writes, Dotting the horizon of this family picture, we'd find people with unflattering stories. Some are known as the chief of sinners, the sinful woman, the thief on the cross, and the prostitute. We'd find weak people, unable to give God anything. We'd even find those who wore the uniform of opposition to God. Here in the portrait of grace, we'd find a multitude of misfits. It would be quite the picture. If this were your family photo, would you hang it on the wall? Or would you hide it in the attic? Because if we zoom in further, what will we find? 
we will find Jesus there, shoulder to shoulder with sinners like me and you. He wouldn't throw this picture away. He'd hang it on his mantle. We are his family. And Jesus is not ashamed of his family. And Jesus followed, Jesus is not ashamed of you. If he gladly emptied himself of his glory for you, became human for you, died for you, pioneered the way to bring you to glory, then you can be absolutely certain he is not ashamed of you. So would you rest in his matchless acceptance of you and be stirred to love him more? Now that's our first point. Let's move on to our second point. That Jesus became fully human, not just to be our pioneer, but also to be our champion. Now for the sake of time, by the way, this is a much quicker point. We're going to focus on verses just 14 to 16 because verses 17 to 18 really set up some massive themes about priesthood, atonement, temptation, that the writer is going to come back to in the book in much greater depth. So we'll park those verses and those ideas for now. But why don't you read along from verse 14 to 16. Um, Since the children have flesh and blood... Uh, He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. The writer doesn't pull back, does he? Uh, The other reason here that Jesus shared in our humanity why he took on flesh and blood and tasted death for us was so that he could enter the ring as our champion and break a foe that we could not break on our own. The devil, who holds the power of death and holds us in slavery by the fear of death. That's heavy stuff. Death is a mighty foe and the devil wields the power of death to condemn us. Um, Friends, the, the diagnostic of the Bible for our times is that death and the power of death, it's such a force um, that we can't even talk about it. And we've just collectively decided that talking about death is just too hard. It's a no-no. It's taboo. We don't talk about death not because we no longer fear it. I I think it's precisely because we do. That the fear of death is so deep that people are fearful to even speak about it, so we choose to, to suppress it. Instead, And the closest, really, that we get to speaking openly about it is to kind of just joke about it. We've even got a category for it, black humor. We joke about death. We joke about the devil. We try to water it all down. Our passage diagnoses that all of this is a symptom of our captivity, our slavery to the fear of death. But we also see how powerful this foe is in the way that you know, most people, whether they're religious or irreligious, they highly value living a good and upstanding life. Right? If you're religious, the thought is um, something like leading a good life is what gives you access to life after death, whatever, um, uh, access to that. Uh, if you're irreligious, the thought could be that leading a good life is worth doing by itself. And in the unlikely event that there should be something after death, well, it should cover all bases there too. But if we were to assess ourselves truthfully, even if it were against our own standards for ourselves, we know that we don't come close to doing our best, that we don't live as we should. And so we remain, therefore, understandably so, condemned and captive to the fear of death. Now, of course we should fear death. It's a foe we can't beat. It's a power that tears us away from people, the relationships, the things that we care about most. It's a, and we fear what might lie possibly beyond it. 
And so it's in the face of this fearsome foe that Jesus becomes fully human to be our champion. Um, Some commentators make the case that the word for pioneer in verse 10 should better be translated as champion. Champion is a concept um, that we don't see all too often these days, Um, but a champion is someone who fights on behalf of someone else. Um, The classic example from the Bible um, is David and Goliath. Right? They both fought each other as substitute champions for their nation's armies. So when David beat Goliath, it meant that Israel won. The war was done. So when the fully human Jesus goes face-to-face with death and the devil, he goes as our substitute champion. When he went to the cross, he took the penalty for our sins, the punishment of death. And because Jesus physically died, the devil thought he won. But because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, death could not hold him. And so he rose again three days later. And that's how Jesus, to use the language of Hebrews 2.14, broke that power of death in our place as our champion. Through his resurrection, the power of death and the devil is now broken. And those who were held in slavery to that fear of death can now be set free because the battle is over. Again, Jesus couldn't live for us if he, were, if he weren't fully human. Jesus couldn't die and defeat death for us if he weren't fully human. He could not be our champion. So if you're here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, and by the way, we're really glad you're here. Um, the stuff in Hebrews chapter 2 is really at the heart of the Christian faith. And so do check out what Marshall was saying about Alpha. Um, I think it's really worth your while. But if that is you, and also if you've been an established Christian for decades, would you hear how completely different Christianity is to religion or irreligion? Right? Both the religious and irreligious, like I said, they remain in the fear of death. Because death is something that everybody will have to face on their own. Like we said, um, the religious and irreligious, they've got no choice but to hope that their life that they live has met the mark, whatever that mark is. They've got to hope that they've done enough, whatever that might be. But Christianity is utterly different because we don't face death on our own. We have a champion who faced death in our place and utterly defeated it to the point that we no longer have to fear it. And while we still have to go through it, um, to quote Pastor Tim Keller, who himself is enduring terminal cancer, he writes, Now all death can do for us, for the believer, is make us more happy and more loved than we've ever been. We don't have to fear it anymore. Because of Jesus, we have no reason to fear death. He offers his help to us as our champion. And so friends, to close, I'll get the band to come up. Um, A godless Jesus makes Christianity utter nonsense. But I hope you see at least a little bit more. A humanless Jesus also makes Christianity utter nonsense. They cannot be severed. Both must be held together. Jesus became fully man to be our pioneer to bring us to glory. Jesus became fully man to be our champion and to defeat the power of death. So to him be praise forevermore. Get the band to lead us to sing.